Food and art have been intertwined since the beginning of culture. From the walls of caves to Memento Mori's still life to Gustave Blasch's sensitive renderings of the people who work in restaurant kitchens. Born in New Orleans, living in New York, with work in the National Portrait Gallery, Gus Blasch talks to us today. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. So today we're in the studio with Gustav Blasch III, an artist who lives in New York, but who's from New Orleans. And he has done lots and lots of wonderful things that are related to food. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Welcome, Gus. Thanks, Liz. I'm happy to be here. So tell me how you got started in art. Well, at a very early age, I would say in fourth grade, me and a fellow classmate were bussed from uh, Coghill in Pontchartrain Park to the New Orleans Museum of Art once a week to basically study and draw and paint. We were fortunate, there was a program uh, that I guess Noma created in conjunction with, I think someone in city politics at that time uh, that allowed students to study during the week out of their classes. Now I was happy about it because I got to get out of school. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was like, this is great. But the uh, teacher uh, at the time, Josephine Smith, uh, really was an early supporter of me as an artist while in school and thought I had a lot of talent. So she pushed for it. My mom supported me early on. And, you know, when I was a kid, even younger than that, I would draw oddly enough plates and little glasses or mugs, you know, early still lives in a right. way where I think a lot of kids who were six or seven or even younger were drawing superheroes, but I was always attracted to things that were physically there. At six and, or seven, they're probably still drawing a sun with little lines yeah. all around. <laughs> <Take> people, and, <laughs> you know, um, but, you know, so I think my mom noticed that early talent and a teacher and a cocktail noticed it also. And so that was really my first experience, I think, being treated differently from other students because of a talent, you know, that, mm -hmm. hey, this is different. This uh, young kid, you know, uh, is it's proficient special. in something. It's special. Yeah, 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 exactly. So that was really the early beginnings. I went on from there. I ended up in NOCA in high school, you know, the old NOCA, <laughs> not the new fancy one that they have, uh, right. which is great for the students, but the one uptown, which uh, we'll all have stories about. And, <laughs> and so from there, I went to art uh, college at the School of Visual Arts. In Savannah, they opened up a satellite campus that they wanted to put some of their more talented students in to start a college, basically, mm -hmm. a satellite college that they could attract more students from the South. They're a New York-based school, and so I think they thought they could reach out to students below the Mason-Dixon line. And, uh, you know, I was part of that inaugural class. Uh, that school has since closed down. We were the only class to finish 
but I then went to uh, the School of Visual Arts uh, graduate program. And, uh, and then from there, that's, you know, my career kind of just continued to evolve after that. So I also presume that you grew up eating the great food of New Orleans while you were here. Well, I know, of course not. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think every, every kid who grows up in New Orleans, they're introduced to the cuisine just by their family. You know, yeah. it's not going out to restaurants and eating the way the culture is now. It's way more advanced than what it was uh, when I was growing up uh, in terms of just the knowledge of food. But my earliest memories of food were, you know, eating food from my grandmother, you know, who was, uh, you know, and grandfather also, you know, who would make uh, hot sausage, oh boys, or they would make uh, belly tong was one of my favorite things uh-huh. that my grandmother would make. And so those, those are those early dishes that was just Friday and you would just eat fried catfish. <laughs> right. Now it's just being sold all over the world. So it's funny to think how, you know, over uh, 40 plus years, <laughs> things transition in the food world. Well, I, I think when you eat it every day, it becomes part of your identity in a way that it doesn't, if it's something you do only when it's a special occasion or something like that, it's just who you are. And you exactly. just miss it when you don't have it. Do you miss exactly. it? In, do you miss it in New York? You know what I do? It's funny. My daughter just came up. Um, she lives in Dallas now. And so she first went to New Orleans to see my mom or grandmother for a few days before flying up to New York. And so she stopped at Parkway and picked up a po' boy for me to fly up for early Father's Day gift. <laughs> and so <laughs> little things like that happen. But to be honest with you, as much as I miss it, it's, it's there's just so much food that's so kin to it that's available now in every city. New York is an international hub. So right. they're just Southern and New Orleans inspired places. Now it's good. Don't get me wrong, but you can still get a little bit of a taste mm-hmm. um, without going so long. And you can now order stuff. You can I can order a muffalata from Central Grocery just online now and they ship it to you. Right. So there's, what I think, a lot more ways connecting people to food all over the globe than yeah. you've ever seen. You can scratch the itch more easily. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And so her bringing up that po' boy was a great thing. But I think the thing I miss probably the most is, you know, just being able to pick up a daiquiri, just, you know, just <laughs> without planning. You know, oh, right. it's warm outside. Let's go pick up a daiquiri and, you know, walk in the sculpture garden or something like that, or right. pick up a daiquiri and also a boy. And so, you know, I think right. you miss, I miss some of that, you know, spontaneity that you don't, you have to plan ahead. Okay, I'm going to want this in a week. So I have to order it. <laughs> right, right. No, that, that's, that's definitely true. And very hard yeah. to anticipate what you're going to want next week. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> So, you know, one of the things that I think of when I think about art in general is because I always have food in my head is Mm -hmm. the relationship between food and art, not only because I happen to think that food and creating meals and all that sort of thing is is artistic in its in, in its core, but it is a way to share yourself and all sorts of things with people. But I also think that nature has so many beautiful aspects in terms of pumpkins and apples and eggs and 
all mm -hmm. the other things that we eat, um, that it just calls out to be replicated and interpreted by people and stuff like that. So yeah. I'd love to hear from your perspective as an artist, what you think. Well, I mean, I think, you know, early on still lives were a huge part of what I did, right? So, um, and one of those, you know, most of those still lives would be me putting food as a part of the uh, sort of the, the tablescape, so to speak. So I would use eggs. I would use a lot of fruit, you know, in early paintings uh, that I would do. I did a whole series uh, that featured, you know, carrots against like an orange background, something very monochromatic or beets, uh, things of this nature. I think throughout time, what painters used were things that were around them, right? Mm -hmm. to, to tell a story in some ways, you know, uh, you know, food has been a part of our lives since the beginning of time, we survived with it. So I think uh, for artists going into that realm uh, to either show the wealth of something, you know, the, these very elaborate paintings in the 18th or 19th century with rabbits and um, whatever game that was either hunted or uh, shot or trapped, uh, to, as a display of, of, of means of financial stature at that time. But then also you had rotted fruit uh, that would show the decay of life and some, right. some, you know, if you had worms coming out of apples, things of that nature, you know, uh, that would, that they had a lot more religious overtones to what those still lives might've represented say in the 17th century. So uh, food has always been a part of, uh, I think art, and, you know, I think the thing that transitioned for me going into, I guess, directly covering a person who is, you know, renowned for her food was, she was the story more than the food uh, that was kind of, a, you know, that, that extra, you know, so yes. that's my connection. So you're talking about Leah Chase. Yes, yes. The, okay. The beloved Leah. So did you grow up eating at her restaurant very often? Yeah, I, so I was, um, I grew up with her uh, grandsons, uh, twins. I, I knew them the as a younger, okay. yeah, uh -huh. younger uh, high school, junior high, you know, sleepovers and stuff like that. And so, um, you know, I knew them uh, very early on. And, you know, their restaurant was a staple. You know, my grandparents, their first date was at her restaurant. Mm -hmm. uh, they would tell the story. So I was familiar with her, with her food and cuisine, you know, prior to documenting. And so how did you decide that you would, that you would document her as well as her in the kitchen? I, your work that you did around her reminded me so much of Degas, you know, doing what he did where he was, I mean, I don't think that the kitchen is a forbidden space, but it certainly has been a forbidden space and certainly not something that most people would have documented sort of in the way that Jagad did, did that um, with the dancers in backstage you know, places or during rehearsals and such. And I think that uh, that, that was an interesting um, Thing that you were you were venturing back back there, not just mm -hmm. looking at the 
the beautiful tablescape that has been put together, but oh, yeah. let's just uh, look at somebody washing the squash <laughs> and slicing the squash and yeah. doing all of that part of it. So tell us about that. Well, my art representative at the time presented the idea to me summer of maybe 2009, I think. And I was working on another project here in New York and he was there dining and it was right after Michael Jackson had passed. And he remembered the stories that Leah would tell him about, you know, serving the Jacksons and then running around as kids when they were the Jackson five. Mm -hmm. And so he had this idea. He thought, oh, it would be great if Gustav painted uh, a portrait of Leah. And so he thought just the portrait would be the way to go. It's like, hey, what do you think about painting Leah Chase? I was like, uh, would love to. I said, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, that makes sense. He's like, what do you, you know, I said, but what if I did a behind the scenes look at her? You know, something that was, you know, more introspective, something that, you know, would cover her over time as opposed to just one portrait. And he's like, oh, that would be great. So uh, we ended up pitching uh, that to Leah. I flew into New Orleans. He mentioned uh, the idea too. He's like, well, I want to, you know, uh, talk to Gus about it. I'm familiar with his work and I like it. Um, and so, you know, I, I told her, hey, this is what I'm thinking in terms of, you know, following you around and really just covering you, all parts of you in the kitchen. And she, she was like, why do you want to paint me? <laughs> and she says, but she said, she said, but you know, you paint in the manner that I like in terms of she likes works that I guess more of a traditional manner of some sort or Mm -hmm. maybe some impressionist overtones. And so once she agreed to it, I started that fall and that lasted for about a three and a half year period where I would come in quarterly and do sketches, shoot photo reference, interview her, I interview her uh, in the kitchen. And what I wanted to do was not show this sort of glamorous uh, side of, or this romanticized version of what the kitchen might be. I, I wanted people to see that at the time when we started, she was 89, that she's in there at 7.30 in the morning doing all of her prep work, doing all of the little things uh, that people don't see once they enter the rest restaurant. They just see the, the food that's mm -hmm. just spread out, but they're not seeing all the hands and work, you know, her dealing with inventory. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I wanted to show her tireless effort uh, in the kitchen to feed people and uh, to, you know, in, in some ways communicate, you know, her, you know, giving of, of herself to, uh, of, of New Orleans culture to those who would come in from all across the globe. Mm -hmm. uh, and also the pressure of that, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, um, I think athletes feel the same way, you know, Michael Jordan would describe, or even Kobe Bryant, that, you know, when people come to see them play a game, that they need to be at their best, that they can't take a night off because these people have paid the ticket prices to see what they've heard about, to see what they've seen on television. And mm -hmm. you don't want to cheat those people. So, you know, I feel, you know, almost as a, as a, as a mythic figure of sport that she was uh, in the kitchen, uh -huh. that she was offering herself every time that that chicken had to be Leah Chase's chicken every mm -hmm. time someone came in, whether it was Monday, in 1976 or a Tuesday in 1994 or all the way up until maybe 2016 or 17. So 
you know, that having to, you know, perform at that level, the pressure of that, you know, it, I, I wanted people to see that, see her in the kitchen and also see her juxtaposed against this large, these large pots and pans and, you know, the diminutive in, from a physical standpoint of her stature versus her big personality that we've all loved. And, and the fact that she never stopped really, I mean, maybe she slowed down toward the very end, but when she was in her eighties, she was still really chopping and cutting and carrying big pots and all of that. Oh, uh, yes, she was. She really did it. She wasn't just directing people or anything. Um, she, she was really doing it, which I just thought probably really helped everybody in the kitchen feel like, well, I can do it too, uh, because she's doing it, you know? Yeah, she inspired them with her work ethic. No one would take off and she was, she'd shoot people out. Poor little duck would get the wrath mostly of her <laughs> ire if, she, if he wasn't doing something the way she wanted it to be done. You know, and so I captured some of those tense moments um, uh -huh. in the series, you know, but uh, I think it was, you know, her, her, her effort, I think, inspired everyone that so she's not taking off at 90 or 91. You know, I mean, yeah. in the series, you see her age, you uh -huh. know, from 89 to 92. Uh, you, you see her, you know, she, she starts to lose weight and, you know, you see her where, you know, start to dawn a cane. And so you kind of see this over this time. I mean, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to kind of capture her at this sort of sort of precious time of our life. Yeah. And you got to actually document the transition a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. yeah. I, I always thought of her as sort of a role model for growing old because yeah. she never looked away from the fact that she was getting older. It wasn't like she was trying to hide it from anybody or anything like that, but she also just acted like it was a normal part of living and mm -hmm. that she was just going to keep going. And yeah. I just thought that that was the most wonderful attitude, except all those people that are getting facelifts and doing all sorts of things, you know, so nobody will know as though you can't tell. I mean, you could tell people have done that. So no, no. Um, she embraced it. She, she, she embraced all parts of life. Um, you know, the ups, the downs. I mean, she was a devout Catholic, so she found strength through her religion. And I think also, you know, grace through the whole process of it all. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think, she never ran away from it. Work was, I think, the most important thing. It was the thing that got her up in the morning. You know, it was that routine that I think allowed her to age um, with so much grace and offer so much to all of us, um, you know, because I think she felt that uh, through every, it was service to her. You know, she felt that it was serving a higher power in a way by feeding the souls of everyone uh, mm -hmm. who would come in. And I mean, she always jokes about how she changed the, the, the world's course over a bowl of gumbo. Yeah. <laughs> the civil rights movement, you know, right. they would uh -huh. um, and plan uh, the Freedom Riders and, you know, Martin Luther King along with Thurgood Marshall and others, but, you know, plan mm -hmm. the Southern, you know, their, their Southern approach. So in a restaurant. So, I mean, um, yeah. Yeah. so she, she, I think she saw all of that and saw, witnessed the power of food and the power of doing 
humble work um, at the service of others. How, how was she as a subject? In other words, could she just forget you were there and, and just keep working? Or <laughs> Whenever was she- I wasn't in her way. <laughs> <laughs> when, she, when she agreed to allow me to, to document her, she says, listen, as long as you stay out of my way, we're going to be good. And now there were some times where she was catering, you know, for the saints or catering for a, a large group where she would say, okay, well, you're going to have to get out of here by 11 or you're going to have to get out you know, I, to where I, I, I couldn't be in her way. And I don't think that it was gonna change her, I guess her um, her thought process while cooking, but I think she needed that freedom without interruption. Right. You know, even perceived right. interruption. And I would do my best to, to really stay. In some way, the voyeuristic aspect of the series was to be a fly on the wall, to not get in her way and to allow her the freedom to be able to just, you know, work. You know, I can imagine like if I had just cameras on me while I was in the studio and what, what that would feel like, you know, there's a there's a part of that where, yeah, I can probably, you know, I could do it and still hold a conversation when I have sitters, you know, before I would talk to them and be able to paint. But there's also times where I would tell them, oh, I'm painting your mouth. So they would just be quiet, even if I wasn't. Right. Right. So I can think right. through something that would might be a very difficult part of the painting. So I know that that still translates for her in the kitchen. And there, there'll be times where, okay, yeah, we can talk and interview and, you know, kind of have a back and forth. And, but then there are times when she really needs to, you know, a rush hour is hitting and she needs mm-hmm. to, to really, um, you know, get down to the business without, without me, my presence. Right. Right. Yeah. And so, how many paintings did you do in that series? 20. And which one is your favorite? I mean, it, I guess it's kind of like asking, you know, a parent who's their favorite child if they have multiple kids, but secretly they do. They have a favorite child, you know. <laughs> they might not answer. <laughs> but they'll be like, yeah, you know, I like this one a little bit more than the other one. Um, for, for a variety of reasons, you know. I think I'll, I'll typically go back to Cutting Squash is still probably my favorite one. That, you know, that's the one at the National Portrait Gallery. And I think that still remains number one in my book. But the, the others, are, you know, I, I love um, Leah's Seated Red Coat, where she's just seated, you know, in her famed red coat. And mm-hmm her niece is presenting her with the inventory list of that day. It's just this, I think this unimagined look into all aspects of what she's doing in the kitchen, Uh where it's not just, you know, just cooking, right? Right. She's a proprietor, right? She's she's the businesswoman of of this sort of this New Orleans empire, right? right? And she's, she's the, you know, the brain child in some way of how it's, went from a small sandwich shop, you know, to serving presidents, right? right? So um, that one holds a, a special place because of, you know, that it's these unexpected moments that you're able to capture that you may not even intended when you went into doing this. Right, so, right. You know, I, I, I never thought, hey, her and her famed coat not cooking, right? Or not talking to the public, but she's seated taking inventory, you know? <laughs> 
Yeah, which is <laughs> an important part of running the restaurant for sure. Exactly. exactly. So tell me about the this painting um, becoming a part of the collection at the National Portrait Gallery. How did that come about? Well, they got wind of, of the series and of this particular painting and wanted it desperately. Uh, I think they were looking to expand um, what portraiture meant for the museum at mm -hmm. that time. You know, not, not to just have old sort of Posed. stuffy, genteel, <laughs> you know, right. the stereotypical portraits, you know, of what, you know, they're, they're admired for in a lot of ways, capturing historic figures throughout American history. You know, they're known for, for presidents mm -hmm. um, and, and having that collection, but I think they wanted to diversify the collection, not just in terms of uh, ethnicity in some way, but what we perceive as dignified portraiture, right? That here a, a humble chef who has impacted her community can hang in the same place as some of our, you know, most revered world leaders, like a George Washington or some sort, right? So mm -hmm. I think that was part of it. And so fortunate for me, the owner of the painting was willing to donate it to the museum when they asked for it. And then, you know, then I was like, okay, well, we, you know, here's another painting. <laughs> we can kind of do a, a switcheroo. Uh -huh. um, and so uh, he was gracious in um, allowing the museum to, you know, because they really wanted it. And so I was, you know, I was, I was thrilled that they were, um, you know, interested, you know. And so that became a, you know, a huge story. I think, you know, it just cemented her as our cultural ambassador um, in New Orleans to have someone who we all knew and loved and who shared so much with our community to be recognized among, you know, so many other mythic figures in the National Portrait Gallery. So I was happy to, you know, to at least play a role in, in, in that part of, you know, her legacy being seen as. So do you um, foresee any more trends in your own work about food? No, I, you know, I don't know. I, right now I'm working on a series, you know, highlighting the uh, rodeo in Angola. Uh -huh. And that, that will be, you know, that, that's been going on for the last three years. But it, it, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt a return, you know, to, to you know, sharing other stories. Uh -huh. uh, you know, because food is such a significant part of our culture uh -huh. that I think there is a place to document those sort of the historic places there. You know, there's this wonderful painting in the Cinelia Chase series where she called Pouring Oysters and the, the family owns that. And it's, it's Leah, you know, pouring PJ's oysters into, into a bowl, you uh -huh. know, and you know, the significance of that, you know, these, these, these two entities working together right. and how food culture in New Orleans is very communal, right? That, you know, it's not as adversarial as you think it would be where it's such a doggy dog eat business, right? right? Yeah. But I think, you know, I think there's a greater good that 
you have a supplier and you have a person who who uses it and that's kind of how it works you know yeah you know we talk you know we talk we talk about the po boy and you know Leidenheimer's uh place and role in something that is you know probably our most significant export right. uh in that in that sandwich so so they're they're you know I never say no I never shut the door on opportunities to to you know, highlight other institutions of Louisiana. Uh-huh. Well, and do you only do you only want to paint things from Louisiana and Louisiana culture? No, no, no. I I, I don't think it. I think it's kind of worked out in a, in a way. When I did the mop makers, that was at the Lighthouse of the Blind. Uh, that was uptown, and they made mops and brooms from scratch. And, but I did do a, a series here in New York that took a long time uh, documenting art conservation uh, from a, you know, the process of, you know, cleaning and restoring paintings. Right. And, you know, yeah. So that was a New York subject. And, you know, but, you know, I guess it's, it's, it's kind of worked out that way. I guess, we, I guess being from, you know, growing up, uh, you know, in New Orleans and, and Louisiana, I guess some of these stories are dear to my heart. So that, you know, and also, I guess, you know, I'm affected maybe more directly by it. And so it's, it's worked out in that way more times than not. Mm-hmm. Um, do I seek it out? You know, I not don't seek it out, but not consciously, but, you know, gravity is, a, I think, a strong force field, right? <laughs> right, right. No matter how far you go away, right. you still revolve around depending on how strong the, the mass of an object is, right? So right, I guess right. New Orleans weighs heavy, heavier as an element in my heart than <laughs> in other but, places. <laughs> so I want to ask you this about you documenting things, because that's the feeling that I get from your work, mm-hmm. that you're really documenting this because you think it's it's worthy of of that, but also makes me feel sometimes that maybe you don't want it to change. Like there's a little bit of nostalgia about it. And of course, that's just my own thing that I get from your work. So I'm not saying that you're doing that. That's just the way it strikes me. I am curious as to whether you think I'm totally off base, but I also, but I, I, it makes me think about your your worry about things that might change, like when we have the big discussion about the po boy, poor boy and all of that sort of thing. So tell me how um, you feel about I, that and how far off base do you think I am? With what? No, no, I, I go in with the idea of documenting what, you know, because these are gonna be, you know, usually I go in with the mindset of doing uh, several paintings, you know, probably anywhere between you know, 12 and 20 paintings, depending on the series and how much meat is on the bone to stay mm-hmm. with our food references. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to cover important aspects of whatever the process is, you know, the whatever the laborious task might seem mundane to some, but I think highlighting these different parts of a, uh, you know, of a chain, I think adds uh, not just more scrutiny, but more pre- appreciation for mm-hmm. what, task is being done at hand, you know, what the craft of the task that's being also done that, you know, we, we, we take for granted what a final product is and not appreciating how it became that product. Mm-hmm. And so there is a level of uh, preservation, um, you know, 
for instance, the mop makers, uh, you know, that happened during Katrina, right? Mm -hmm. So I started that series the summer before Katrina um, hit and uh, was fortunate enough to get so much information in terms of documentation that I could, therefore, after I, when we evacuated for the storm, I took the one painting I had finished <laughs> with me and never returned to New Orleans again as a, as a, as a resident as a result, because I was actually living there at the time when it hit and wow. ended up going back to New York because we didn't know what we would be returning to. You know, we were kept right. out of going back uh, to see our homes for a few months. But as a result, the facility ended up closing their mop making um, operation. warehouse. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, yeah, operation uptown. And they moved them to, I think it was Mississippi. Uh, and, but then they, you know, but then one of the workers who I followed around, you know, who was much older, ended up passing away. And then the, you know, one of the other workers who had been there a long time, you know, it just, it just, as a facility, they couldn't sustain what it was once it had moved. And then right. they ended up moving back, but not taking the, the mop and broom operation with them. So right. when the series happened, it was a preservation of all of the work that they had done making these mops and brooms and the actual workers uh, who I interviewed and followed, they, they actually went to the opening. I was just still in New York. I wasn't able to get in town for the opening. And it was actually at Cold Frat Gallery. They represented me at that time. And, uh, you know, people told me stories of how they, they all came, even though they couldn't see, uh, to support uh, what it was. And, and Cole, uh, who was the owner, um, ended up letting them touch the paintings. So they could feel the paintings. I heard it was, everyone was just in tears watching mm -hmm. this moment. I remember getting chills when I, when I heard about um, them coming to support and being able to touch the work. Um, so I think, you know, preservation is a, is a very important thing. I understand what photography may add to, you know, being able to do some of these things. But I also think as artists, as painter, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's my medium of choice. And I think there is something special about seeing these things painted as opposed to maybe just photographed or right. video. Right. You know, you know, there's, a, there's a different dimension um, that I think it adds. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about pool boys. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think you're gonna have to give people the history of our conversation. <laughs> just, just, just a small synopsis of we've been talking about this for now a couple years. <laughs> so, so we started talking about this because you were you were expressing a real concern about things that were being done to poor boys and being put on poor poor boys that are um, were not traditional. Yeah, and um, so. What other parameters do you think that there are to what is a true poor boy? Well, just to give you some background, you know, living here in New York and visiting other areas, and to be honest with you, I have to credit um, just the expanse of uh, food television shows, right? Mm -hmm. And how, you know, Andrew Zimmern and, you know, Bourdain would go across the country or mm -hmm. across the Atlantic or Pacific or wherever to document food culture from all over. 
And I kept seeing more times than not, and also here in New York, people calling things sandwiches po'boys that weren't po'boys. Like the, if you a chicken cutlet on a ciabatta bread is not a po'boy. Right. Right. But that's what you would see this listed on a menu if you go to a place or you would see bologna sandwich, you know, a thick slice of bologna on a, on just regular white bread, you know, oh. it, it's calling it a pulpo. And you're like, no, 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 we need to stop with this. Because for me, I think that sandwich is one of the most important um, mm-hmm. sort of exports that we have to offer in New Orleans. People come across the globe to New Orleans to experience the joy of a bow boy mm-hmm. and what that is. And I feel that the misrepresentation of that in other cities or, you know, by chefs across the globe. Mm-hmm. It, it, listen, you have cognac, you know, that's called cognac because it comes from the cognac region of France, right? Armagnac is the same brandy but it comes from the Armagnac region. Right. But through trademarking, at least you know that because of the cultivation of whatever the grapes are or whatever, even some of the minute parts of the process, you know, that the champagne from the champagne region is sparkling wine anywhere else if it's not made. There are protections there that I think support that export from those communities. And I think that that should also happen for us when it comes to the pole board, that, hey, it has to be French bread, more than likely Leidenheim's. It has a, to be New Orleans art. French bread, a not New just bread. French bread. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not just, yeah, not a French baguette, but mm-hmm. I, it's a shame because I grew up in New Orleans and I speak of French bread right, right. solely in New Orleans as opposed to its export, the baguette, right? right? So, right. Um, but yeah, it has to be, you know, the, the French bread from New Orleans with our humidity, with our mm-hmm. water. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think, uh, I, w- I would love to lim- if it could be limited to our Gulf resources when it comes to our, our shrimp, mm-hmm. um, our catfish um, in the Mississippi. You know, these these things uh, I think are important. Now, I think when it comes to assembly, you can play around with some of that. But I do think, you know, when it comes to seafood, when it comes to roast beef, you know, there are certain things I think that we will happily call a po' boy, but I think bread and our sort of, I think, seafood, uh, if it's gonna be a seafood-based uh, element, uh, mm-hmm. should be, I think, the first demarcations, if we're, gonna, if we're ever gonna trademark, right? Kentucky, I think they, they, they trademarked the name Kentucky and KFC had to change their name from Kentucky Fried to KFC. Right. You know, um, so I think there are ways for us to be able to protect uh, what a po' boy is, and you know, I talked to you about like we need to be able to set up a commission of some right. sort, you know, where right. we can truly landmark uh, or uh, trademark what the po' boy is and what it needs to be. And I think it would be wonderful for our industry, for our fishermen, for our uh, for our bread makers, right. <laughs> for our bakeries, right. you know, to turn that to turn that out, you know. So well, um, in in Italy now, there's a a program where they come to places like the United States, but other places where there are supposedly Italian restaurants and Mm -hmm. actually certify them. So actually come and visit and certify Mm -hmm. and say, yes, this qualifies. I mean, it's all all written down what they review and all that sort Mm -hmm. of thing, but 
this qualifies as an Italian restaurant so that you can't just call yourself an Italian restaurant if you're not serving in a certain way. I don't think that they dictate so much what you serve, but you have certain things that must be, you know, and uh, I think that that might be the easiest way to do it because um, then you are allowing it to be done in other places. If somebody mm-hmm. wants to have Leidenheimer's bread shipped there or something like that, yeah. but you are still making sure that it has all the, it needs the standards. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I think we're saying some of the same thing. I think, yeah, they, you know, there's a Neapolitan pizza has to be in a particular Neapolitan oven, brick oven that they have to have the serial number for. Um, so it, it goes that far. But I, I think that, yeah, a Louisiana commission or, or what a restaurant would do would have to submit, you know, for permission of, hey, being able to call something that, that you know, and maybe they have to still pay trademark fees, um, which is another driver of the economy for Louisiana, I feel, uh-huh. if we are able to use this properly and make people buy into the franchise of Oh Boy around the country, right? Um, so I think, you know, that's why it's good for us to have these talks and, you know, be able to combine different ways of being able to allow the export, but under certain groups, right? That, right. you know, whether it be them submitting, whether it be a way, maybe a mixture of both. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I do want po' boys on the menu, but I also think it has to be a certain standard. Um, if you're gonna call at, it a po' boy, as opposed exactly. to just, just call it a sandwich. Just yeah. call it a sandwich. They know they're marketing it as such to make money. They're making money off of the name. And I don't right. think that, you know, again, a bologna sandwich po' boy on white bread qualifies or a chicken <laughs> sandwich on, uh, you know, on a ciabatta. Uh-huh. really qualifies as such. I'm sorry, just, it just doesn't, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I think we agree. I think that trying to figure out how to- The mechanics um, of, of enforcement, that's really tough, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and maybe someone listening to the podcast will offer us uh, <laughs> some good ideas or, or uh, connect us in some right. way to doing it, you know? But I, I think, you know, this fight for me is not over. <laughs> I think we talked about this in maybe 2017 or 18. Yeah, it was know, a while. It was a while back. It was a yeah. while ago. I know, and I haven't forgotten about it. And I, 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 you know, unfortunately, other things start to take precedent in your life, so you're not able to work at it full force. Right. But I think enough like-minded people like ourselves um, can maybe, you know, get the ball moving, and you know trademark our, our, our greatest export. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Hey, listen, maybe we need to also do this for gumbo, you know, some, some, something of that nature too, because I see gumbos that are like, come on, this, this is just soup with rice in it. This is not a gumbo, Uh you know, Uh let's not go there, but that one will be much harder. I think than, than, than the book. I, I agree. I think that would be harder. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. But thank you for giving me this platform to, oh, to, to Ben. To ben. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so anything else about art and food on your mind that you think we should be discussing? 
Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I feel like the, the restaurant industry really took a humongous hit oh, um, during the pandemic, you know, and, you know, I think, you know, as we continue to kind of crawl out of this, uh, this very dark period for the world, um, mm-hmm. that I, I do hope that, you know, uh, we as, as citizens, customers, uh, go and really support our, uh, our restaurants, you know, our restaurant yeah. industry as much as we can, you know, yes. um, you know, a lot of them didn't survive, uh, yeah. you That's know, so right. happy, um, you know, I spoke with uh, Stella, um, a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, about, you know, how the restaurant was doing and, you know, trying to support them, uh, you know, arranging dinners, uh, there, uh, you know, for my family, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because I think it's important to to support, uh, you know, something you know, something that's just so near and dear to us. We can't take for granted how much time and effort uh, we, uh, uh, that restaurant industry provides for us to go in for our enjoyment, for us to have meetings that are important, you know, whether it be through business, whether it be catching up with friends and that, right. you know, that, at the forefront is this is, is this meeting place where where things get solved and done, and mm-hmm. you know if they play a role in our everyday life, and you know those uh, you know and it's it's from the chefs all the way down to the, the you know the waiters wait waitresses busboys they're all affected by what has happened, and you know I, I just hope that you know we all you know maybe if it's you know and I know we would have been financially affected also, but if you know, maybe if you can get out once a week to, you know, to a different place, uh, if, you're, if you're still worried about going indoors, you know, order some pickup or delivery, mm-hmm. uh, all, 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 all helps uh, when mm-hmm. you can support that industry. Right. Well, thanks so much, Gus, for being part of the podcast today. I really found this to be a wonderful conversation. Oh, thanks, Liz. I, I'll be happy to do it again. It was good to see you through Zoom. Good to see you too. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.